1: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tacovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So I'm sitting here with Adam Harriton and he is a forager amongst many other things. So Adam, I'm just going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself because you're going to do it better than me, of course.
2: Yeah, sounds good. Well, <laughs> nice to chat with you, Luke, today. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. So yeah, my name is Adam Harriton and I live a little north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and I run a organization called Learn Your Land. And anybody who's heard of Learn Your Land probably is familiar with the videos that I've put out on YouTube and Facebook as well. So I do a lot of video content, but I do a lot of in-person instruction as well, a lot of classes, a lot of events, a lot of workshops, mainly throughout the Northeast United States, Great Lakes region, Appalachian region. And I specifically focus on identification of plants mushrooms and trees that seems like more and more these days i'm teaching people about mushrooms and i'm not sure why that is but a lot of people just ask me about the mushrooms more so than the other things so a lot of the events that i do tend to be mushroom focused but i do enjoy all things about nature but nowadays it seems like i'm instructing and learning the most about the plants mushrooms and trees
0: so let's talk about your youtube channel and content what what uh really inspired you or made you decide to create all that content? It was a conscious decision early on. It's
2: not like I just stumbled upon video content or thought I'd give it a go. I knew that when I created Learn Your Land that a lot of it would be very video content heavy because Growing up, I used to do a lot of things with video cameras. I used to film a lot of different things, whether it was skateboard films or just funny videos with my brothers or my family or my friends. And so I think I already had that in my system anyway. I knew how to kind of do that stuff. Not very well. It's not like I'm an expert editor or cinematographer or anything like that. But I like to instruct as well. I like to teach. And I don't mind putting my face on camera. And so I think I blended those two passions together. And just started filming and i basically wanted to early on take people out into the woods with me you know whether it was through an in-person event and for those who couldn't attend my events in western pennsylvania i thought well it'll almost be like they're out here with me if i make it seem realistic enough and so a lot of people who watch my videos say hey it's almost like you're speaking directly to me because i am like i'm looking (laughs) directly at the camera and speaking to every person who's watching rather than Just rambling or just going off on a tangent. I don't want to take advantage of people's time. I know how precious time is these days, and I want to make the most of it for myself and obviously for the audience as well. And so that's been going on for about six years. And I don't put out a ton of video content, it's maybe two or three videos a month if I'm lucky, but I try to make them high quality videos. And like I said, I don't want to waste anyone's time, I don't want to waste my time. So I don't just put fluff out there. I try to make the best that I possibly can.
0: No, I got to say, when I first started uh, mushroom hunting and I I had trouble identifying a few mushrooms, you know, the usual Google search to try and find as much info as possible. And then the next thing, you know, your videos pop up and I'm like, Oh, what's this? Clicked on it. Next thing you know, I'm down the rabbit hole of YouTube and it's about an hour long streaming session of your videos. And I got to say they're, uh, very, dense as far as material, but you break it down into simple terms, even though they're quite scientific, if that makes sense at all. But I mean, that the, they're content rich. And it's it's pretty interesting to see that some somebody can do a 10-minute episode on something and you walk away going, wow, I didn't know that at all. There's so much out there that I didn't know about that mushroom. And then on top of the fact that you actually help people identify them, I think that's pretty cool. So my question with that would be, Is it scripted or is it off the cuff? That's a question
2: (laughs) everybody wants to know. How do I do it? Everyone has their own theory. It's pretty funny. Uh, When I go to events or I meet people, they're always wondering, where's the camera person who's filming you the whole time? And what do you pay them? Are Are they always out there with you? And literally, if you would just look on the other side of the camera, it's just a tripod and it's just the woods behind it. There's nobody out there with me. In most cases, there might have been one or two videos where I had somebody film. And maybe in the future, I will get more into that because it is a lot of work to do a lot of this myself. As far as the structure of it, it all depends on the video. Many of the videos are literally off the cuff because when I'm traveling, when I'm out in the woods, I could be three hours away from my house. If I find a particular mushroom, I'm going to want to film it that day and share the information about that mushroom that day to people because I don't want to drive back home, do a bunch of research, and drive back out because my time is precious. My time is limited, and I don't have all the time in the world to do all that and to run back out. And the mushroom might be gone. Somebody might pick it. An animal might might eat it. These things are very ephemeral. And so the mushrooms told me to be very diligent with my time. And if, (laughs) if I see something, I have to capitalize on it on that spot. But having said that, there are plenty of videos where I have done a huge amount of research in advance, sometimes a whole week. Literally, just as much as somebody would work on their job nine to five, I'm doing that even more researching something. I'm at the library. I'm at home. I'm out there in the field studying something, just spending a disproportionate amount of time researching these things. But it's not like I script word for word and then read a teleprompter. A lot of people assume I have a teleprompter behind me. I don't even know how that would work. I don't want to drag that thing around the woods. I don't know how much <laughs> that thing would cost, um, and so it's off the cuff in the sense of that. Sometimes I bring a notebook out with me, and I have you know some points that I want to hit upon. Uh, but a lot of cases, it's just me going out based on what I've known or what I've recently read.
0: Right. Okay. So that's good. So there's a, something I want to talk about first, and it's I found it pretty interesting about you, and it because at first I was like. Yeah, this is just some like maybe long haired hippie or something walking around the woods. In the first video I found of you, and then I was like, Oh, this guy's pretty cool, man. All the stuff he's putting out there is great content. And then, if you go back even further in time hop and do a Google search, you something that pops up is your mantic ritual days or your metal band days, which was I actually listened to it, I pulled them up and I went on. Uh, I think I may have actually even purchased an album. <laughs> And I like it. It's pretty cool. It's uh, it's a mix between like a Pantera, Metallica, and something a little heavier in between. But it's actually pretty good. So you want to talk about that a little bit before we... Because I think it ties into how you actually got started in the nutrition and foraging path.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, first I'll say Pantera was not an influence for us. <laughs> Metallica for sure. Maybe some old Megadeth. Maybe some Slayer. <laughs> And some other things thrown in there, but I never really listened to Panthera. But I guess I could see how you get that out of our music. Yeah, I mean, growing up, a lot of people want to know how I got into this. And I'm quick to tell people that I wasn't always into this. I wasn't raised a wild child. It's not like my parents were foragers. It's not like this is in my bloodline. I mean, growing up, basically, my whole life revolved around music. I come from a very musical family. That's all I knew growing up. And I thought everybody was into that. I thought everybody played 10 different instruments. I thought everybody had <laughs> piano lessons on a Tuesday night or had to take drum lessons or played in a school band. And, but that's what I did. And as I grew into my teens, I started playing rock and roll and heavy metal and punk rock with some friends and just a few different bands. And honestly, it was just a way to get some of that teenage angst out. It's like, that was my outlet. Um, I had fun doing it. I don't regret any of it. It's not like I would go back to doing that kind of stuff because it served a purpose at that point in time. But I'm not as angry as I used to be. And I've come to terms with a lot of things in life. And I don't need that outlet of being on a stage and talking about chains and knives and metal and all the things that heavy metal people talk about. I still listen to that stuff from time to time. I mean, it gets me going at the gym. It improves my deadlift and my squat numbers. But as far as uh, moving forward with that, I don't really play that stuff too much anymore. But uh, I wonder if in the future I will bring the music back into what I'm doing, because it's still a part of me. Uh, I still drum from time to time, but mostly like on the stovetop using like (laughs) the forks and the cast iron skillet for like the hi-hat or the ride cymbal. And it's pretty cool. Like I still have the chops, you know. Um, But I wonder if maybe one day I'll bring that back around and incorporate mushrooms and music, and all this stuff together.
0: Do you uh, make create your own music for your videos then? Or is that something maybe in the I, future? There's
2: probably three or four videos that I have incorporated my own music. I wish I could, but it's just it's a matter of time. You know, it takes me long enough to edit that thing. Sometimes it's literally, <laughs> I don't know, 22 hours straight of editing. That's how long it takes to do some of this stuff. And I yeah. thought, oh, well, if I do a... A song on top of that in the beginning or at the end or in between. This is gonna add another couple of days of work and I don't get paid enough for that.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> I, I interviewed a guy a couple couple of weeks ago and he was talking about, he goes, I run three cameras all the time. He's like, You know how long it takes to edit a video mm-hmm. of a day's hunt on three three different cameras?
2: <laughs> yeah, I can I mean, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of work for a ten minute video that you see on YouTube that somebody only watches for maybe Thirty seconds, then gives you a thumbs down. And says, "I don't like it." That's and terrible. It's like, well, that's okay. I mean, it's your choice. You can do what you want, but just know that I put a lot of work into it. Well,
0: let's just say I subscribed and you get thumbs up. So thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so how how did um, how did you get started foraging then? I, I mean, I think it was a nutrition path first or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean,
2: it was through food, and it sounds obvious. Like, yeah, of course, if you're foraging, you're foraging for food, but I became very, very aware of the effects that what I was eating was having on my body. I don't think a lot of people realize that. (laughs) I mean, maybe on some level they do or they don't do anything about it. But 10, 12 years ago, I started noticing, hey, certain things are working for my body. Certain things are not working for my body. And it was usually the latter. Most things that I was putting into my body at the time, they were not working for my body. I just didn't feel very good. I didn't have high energy levels, my digestion was off, my complexion was off. I just didn't feel optimal. And as an 18, 19, 20 year old, you shouldn't really be breaking down at that age, all things considered. But I felt like I was. And so I mean I started with, you know, the typical things that people getting interested in health get into. You know, going to the health food store, looking at organic things, drinking soy milk and uh, attending wild food walks, and that's kind of how I got into it. And it was a very, very slow process at first. I mean, when I first attended a wild food walk, it wasn't until maybe three or four years later that I got back into it because I took some time off to move to Hollywood, California and play heavy metal with the band. But right around that time, I noticed, you know, I'm getting really interested in health and nutrition. I like reading about this stuff. When people ask me about it, I like talking about it. And I just started watching these videos online, and I came across a couple mentors, and whenever I saw them speak about a particular subject, I said, I want to do that. And so that's what I did, essentially. I started copying them, and I kind of recreated that through Learn Your Land. But instead of speaking directly about nutrition, I kind of sidestepped that a little bit and talk about plants and mushrooms and trees, but clearly a lot of the health benefits associated with that. So food was my gateway into this
0: whole thing. So who were some of those mentors?
2: People nobody would recognize. So I'm not even gonna mention okay. them. All right. But a couple, okay. a couple uh, just nutritionists and people really passionate about what they were talking about. And okay. it was honestly, for the first time in my life, I was exposed to a teacher that really cared about what they were professing.
1: Right. And I had
2: never experienced that before. I went through grade school, I went through high school, I went through college. Honestly, never really having a teacher that was so passionate about what they were doing, minus some of the music instructors. But as far as like English and geometry and Spanish and all that stuff, they just treated it like it was a job. And I was never really thrilled or impressed by that. But then I came across these speakers who were like talking about cinnamon and blueberries and wheatgrass juice. And they came alive and I came alive. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. People are actually passionate about something. And I kind of just took that and ran with it and did it with mushrooms and did it with plants and trees.
0: Yeah, no, I can kind of relate to that because I had allergies like pretty much my entire life growing up. And recently within the past year, I've cut out all grains. And just by doing that, I don't have allergies anymore. I think maybe I've taken like three, three pills that were allergy pills within an entire year. I mean, that's pretty amazing to think that just your food can change your entire body like that. It's pretty, pretty interesting. So I want to know a little bit more about your resources that you used other than your nature walks and things like that when you first got started. And what would you recommend to like a new forager like myself?
2: So I'm really going to harp on the idea of attending walks and events and workshops because I think there's no substitute for that. I mean, we think that we can get everything from a book these days, we think we can get everything from a video, and I know I put videos out there. People think they can get everything from a Facebook group, and you can get a lot. I'm not going to deny that. I mean, I've gotten a lot just through self-research, through pouring through the scientific literature, through watching videos and all of that. But I would say the most help I've ever gotten was just being part of a community of people, of all different skill levels, of all different backgrounds, and learning from them. And so what this looks like is find a nature club in your area, find a mushroom club, because there are dozens in North America, maybe even hundreds. I mean, Pennsylvania alone, I think, has four or five, and it's not even like this is a big state or anything like that. But it doesn't matter where you live in Pennsylvania, you'll find a mushroom club. There are botanical societies all over. There are bird clubs, there are general nature clubs, there are lichen associations, and bryophyte associations, and sportsmen's clubs. Hook up with these people because some of these people can be lifelong mentors. And some of the mentors that I've had as far as just hunting, like hunting animals, it's very difficult just to learn yourself by watching a video or reading a book. But I found some of these people in person and they've become great friends and they'll be my mentor probably forever. And so I recommend attending these walks and attending these classes and events and spending money on this. It's one of the most, it's probably the wisest use of your money (laughs) in addition to food, your education as well. Like, don't think that just because you got to spend 300 bucks or 400 bucks on a weekend workshop, like you're wasting your money. You're not. If it's for your education, then it's totally worth the investment. I mean, cut back on the restaurants that you're going to cut back in the movies that you're watching cut back on Netflix, cut back on your smartphone, cut back on everything else, but food and education. Like that's really important stuff right there. And so I would totally recommend people do that. I have advice for you. Get a library card, (laughs) get up every library that you possibly can and speak to the librarians because they want to speak to you and they've got so much information for you and they can point you in the right direction. And I can't tell you what a library card has done for me. I mean, I've had upwards of 70 resources checked out at one time and didn't have to pay a fine on a single one of those. That's pretty (laughs) impressive right there. But I'm also fortunate that here in Western Pennsylvania, we have one of the greatest library systems in the world. So it's just remarkable what you can get literally for free. And so books are definitely recommended, but I would put the caveat in there. Try to make it really specific to your area, as specific as possible, because most people have at least the plants covered In North America not necessarily the mushrooms it's still a little too mysterious and cryptic but as far as animals and birds and plants like you can find some good books that pertain to your area and of course watching videos and that kind of stuff that's important as well but I would kind of put them in a put those recommendations in that order attending the events hooking up with people books videos all that kind of stuff
0: so would you recommend if someone was trying to learn mushrooms, would you recommend learning tree types first, or would you recommend learning mushrooms?
2: I would recommend that they just spend as much time as possible in nature and start finding mushrooms. Just look at them. Just notice them, see where they are. Because in many cases, people just don't see them and they don't have an eye for it yet. But just noticing where they are and noticing what's around you. And that's the thing that a book can't do for you. Like a book's not going to tell you that when this mushroom is popping, the oak leaves are this color or the squirrels are making these noises or these kinds of birds are present or this is what the weather is like. That's what a book really can't get into. But if you're out there and you see that red and white mushroom and it looks so distinct, like, you know, you could probably get an ID on a mushroom that looks so distinct. Just notice everything else that's around you and then go look for an ID. So another step is just spend as much time as you can in nature. Like that's a good starting point.
0: It's a good, a good place for anybody to be really therapy as well. But look, I want to talk about, you mentioned hunting. I'd like to talk about that. How did you decide or how did, how did you get into hunting?
2: Same way I got into foraging. (laughs) (laughs) I was hungry. (laughs) I mean, honestly, that's, that's the truth. But just like how I got into foraging, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It's not like I really decided, okay, this is the year I'm definitely going to get into it. It kind of just happened. Like, it found me rather than me finding it. And I think I just realized that, you know, deep down, plants and mushrooms, those things are great. But they don't provide a lot of calories, but animals provide a lot of calories. And just another way for me to connect the landscape where I live in Western Pennsylvania is to get to know the animals. And I'll admit, I don't have that deep of an education on the animal life here in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I can name most of the ones that I see, for sure. But I'm not very good at tracking these things. I'm not very good at knowing their ecology, uh, knowing their cycles, knowing when they're out, knowing what they're doing, knowing why they're doing some of the things that they're doing. And as paradoxical as it sounds... I know so much about white-tailed deer, relatively speaking, compared to what I used to know, because I hunt that animal now. And I know way more than I would ever know if I would never hunt that animal. So hunting has allowed me to know that animal. And it's interesting because if I want to learn another animal that is legal to hunt, the best way for me to do that would probably to go out there, notice it, and to hunt it as well. Uh, But I mean, deep down, I think it's just, like I mentioned, another way for me to connect to Western Pennsylvania, the land. I'm deeply invested in trying to connect as much as possible to this landscape because I think true health can be found there. And, you know, I studied nutrition at the university level and we talked about food, we talked about numbers, we talked about macronutrients. We never talked about the value of connecting to a local foodscape like where you live and how important that is. We're familiar with like locavores and eating local, but most of it's domesticated food and cultivated food from foods that aren't native to the area where you live. But here in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of white-tailed deer. And I feel very good connecting with that animal in the way that I do. And I mean it when I say I love that animal. I really, really love white-tailed deer. And I really enjoy making it a part of me.
0: So how many deer do you hunt a year? Is it pretty much just you get a doe and a buck tag or what what do you do as far as? So it all depends
2: on where you live in Pennsylvania because in certain areas where there's a lot of deer pressure and where there aren't a lot of hunters, you can apply for many, many more tags. So because I live close to Pittsburgh, relatively speaking, there aren't many people hunting near the Pittsburgh area. And so there are a lot of antler list tags in this area. And so especially through the January season, which is like the shotgun or the slug gun season. And there's some flintlock as well. I don't do that, but I hunt with a slug gun into the January season. And I mean, if you look online, I think there's 7,000 tags remaining for antlerless <laughs> deer because the game commission wants these animals gone because there's just so many of them and not that many hunters. So, Unfortunately, I'm not that good at getting bucks because I don't hunt archery. And for some reason, I just don't see them in rifle season. But I'm content to take dough. I don't mind doing that. I'm not out there for the big bucks. I'm out there for food. And the deer that present themselves to me, so long as they are legal, I'll accept them as an offering. And I feed myself. And I feed the people who live in my house. And I feed my cat the same animal. We all eat the same animal in this house.
0: So speaking of that, then, do you eat the vitals?
2: Yes. That's my favorite part. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, the hunters that I hunt with don't. And they know that I do. So my freezers are stocked with heart and liver. Um, and that's pretty much it. I've eaten kidneys before, and I like them. But heart and liver are the ones that I really go after. Do
0: you? No. You know what? <laughs> you don't have taste for it. <laughs> I I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I just haven't. And uh, in my area, CWD is pretty prevalent. So it's one of those Mm -hmm. things that I'm not going to take it and probably hang on to it until I get it tested anyway. And of course, you know, the vitals are the most concentration of the chronic waste. So it's one of them things I just, I really haven't done it. Now I'm not saying I wouldn't do it though. So it's, it's just one of those things that not really in my area right now. Have you um,
2: hunted a deer and got it tested and it tested positive for CWD?
0: I have not, but I do know quite a few people that have. Yes. Yeah. In, mm. in the area surrounding me. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty common around you. Yeah, it's common in
2: Pennsylvania, uh, in certain counties more so than others. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, it's probably way more prevalent than what the authorities are reporting. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people are worried. Because I am an adult-onset hunter, like I've only been in this a couple of years, I haven't really noticed the trends over the years. I don't know the conspiracy surrounding like the authorities <laughs> and what they're telling us and what they're really after. But I hear the hunters talk, and I, I pay attention. Uh, but all I basically know is what I've been reading through what the Game Commission's been reporting. But it is definitely prevalent, and there are way more tags in those areas to try to eliminate those deer.
0: yeah. Around me, it it was a big push for uh, a lot of culling over the past few years. And that's, I mean, significantly impacted the herds as far as how many they took. And then your hunting numbers, your harvest numbers are super low. But I'm starting to see a little bit of a comeback, and I'm hoping it's a healthier herd. We'll see as time tells. But um, So I'm kind of curious, though. Have you thought about bow hunting? Is it something you've flirted with the idea of, or is it just something you're not really interested in?
2: I am interested in it. I'm content to hunt with firearms. I am interested in archery hunting and I'm sure the day will come when I do harvest my first deer with a bow. I don't know when that will be. Typically around archery season, it's the peak of the mushroom season as well. And I know I can do both, but yeah. the peak of the mushroom season also corresponds with the peak of my instruction season as well. So I'm traveling a lot, I'm doing a lot of work on top of the videos that I'm creating. So I hate to use the excuse that I don't have a lot of time during that season, but I definitely have way more time in December and January to get out there. But I imagine within the next five years, maybe I'll be out there hunting with the bow.
0: So do you think you'll be hunting with a primitive bow or will it be a, a (laughs) a traditional or more of a compound type modern setup?
2: Honestly, probably a compound setup. Whatever my mentor would recommend that's pr- pretty much what i'll go after yeah i mean i don't think i'll be using a crossbow to start out with not like there's anything wrong with that i know plenty of people who harvest deer with crossbows um yeah that's i mean i think, I think a compound bow is probably something i would start with
0: yeah so compound bow i don't know i kind of peck you as a traditional kind of guy i don't know why that is but a lot of people do like... i don't
2: know i don't know why that is i mean i live a very domesticated lifestyle
0: i do <laughs> <laughs> but, so you're yeah, saying, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. What do you hunt with archery wise? Well, I, uh, I started out with a compound bow. I was, I think I was about 15, 14 when I started shooting a bow. And then I think I was about 15 when I actually started hunting. Didn't really have a mentor. And I got to say that that is one way one should definitely go. I pretty much learned on my own, I had a huge learning curve. Um, I don't think I got a, my first year until I was about 19 and that was with a bow. And then since then, of course, you know, it's progressed. And then I got into firearm hunting, and boy, that was just way easier. (laughs) And after a few years of killing deer, it was kind of one of those things to where the the hunt, it wasn't as exciting as it was. And I had the time to practice with a traditional bow, and my buddy switched. So I switched over, and I fell in love with it. It was one of those things that was just amazing. It was so simplistic that... With a compound bow, I had one season to where I went through three arrow rests and broke three sight pins all in the same hunting season, archery season. So it was one of those things. I just, I was tired of it. I was tired of all these modern things breaking and the other one was a stick. It was a string. There was no sights. It was instinctual. Something about it. The simplicity was beautiful and I absolutely loved it. It was definitely a struggle. That's why they call it a struggle stick. But um, as, as time went on, I just didn't have enough time to shoot it to where I felt confident with it. So, I, yes, I've switched back to a compound bow to where it's one of those things. Once you get it dialed in, as long as you keep your form, it's definitely dead on. And that's kind of where I am right now. I definitely, if I have more time in the future, I'm definitely going to get back into it. hundred percent. It's just, to me, it feels pure. It's one of those things like you can go duck hunting out of a big boat with a blind and a huge spread or hunt in a field with a commercial spread, but you could have a canoe and paddle in and a backflow somewhere and have just maybe a dozen or two dozen decoys and throw them out and just hide yourself in the vegetation around you. And that seems pure and simple. And that's what I love the most out of all hunting. So <laughs> with that, that's where I feel about that. But, um,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, one day I'm sure I will get into it. Yeah. It's just, I'll know when the time is ready. I think Yeah, like it'll be a very, very strong, overwhelming feeling because that's, what's guided me the past couple of years with any of these things that I've gotten into right now for me, it just seems a little too soon and I'm having fun out there in December and January with a firearm. I really am. Um, but we'll see what happens. We'll check back in in a couple years.
0: Right. So do you have a rifle season by you then, or is that just in the more rural areas of Pennsylvania?
2: Yeah, we do have a rifle season. Again, close to the Pittsburgh area, you're not allowed to shoot a high powered rifle. So I go out a little bit. I get tags in the surrounding areas where you are legally allowed to shoot a firearm. And it's pretty much open for two weeks. Um, The game commission seems to be changing some things around, adding an extra Saturday. Now they're looking at opening up some Sunday hunting as well. Uh, which up until this year you weren't allowed to do with firearms, but things are changing. And again, you hear a lot of the older hunters just uh, bemoaning that all these changes, just wanting it the way that it used to be, you know, sticking to tradition. But I guess I do place faith in the game commission. There's a lot of smart people that work for the game commission, a lot of intelligent people, and they're doing a lot of hard work and they have challenges just like all of us. But I don't think they're out to get us, but I might be too naive. Like I said, I'm an adult onset hunter.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I think um, I think they've what opened up three Sundays or something like that. It's not too yeah. many. It's it's like a trial period, pretty much. I know yeah. uh, backcountry hunters and anglers had a huge push for that. I don't know if that's something you've ever looked into or anything like that, as far as the conservation aspect and um, protecting your public lands, things like that. What do you, what do you uh, do? You hunt a lot of public land.
2: A lot of it's private, actually. A lot of it's just privately owned. Um, The people that I hunt with have a lot of connections with landowners. And so we go on their private land with their permission and have a good time doing it. So honestly, I don't think I have hunted on public land yet. It's not something that I've done.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I've kind of switched pretty much. And that's why, you know, publicly challenged, right? That's the name of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where I came from a pi- private background and then going from private to public, it was a huge, huge eye opener as far as difficulties and challenges you face. And most of it's actually other hunters, right? You're sharing this land and trying to be a steward of it, but sharing mm-hmm. it with so many other people and trying to figure that out is really the the new challenge. And I'm kind of, I'm really digging it because it's it's a whole new set of difficulties and that's uh why I started this podcast, actually, to talk to people who know what they're talking about.
2: Yeah, I think Um, it's a great name. I love it.
0: Thank you. I mean, when I
2: hunt mushrooms and plants and all that stuff, a lot of that is public. Uh, But as far as animals, that's private. So I am familiar with sharing resources with a lot of other people who might not always have the best of intentions regarding the (laughs) land. So I'm kind of... Basically start and
0: end with them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm kind of curious. So um, so you got into hunting, you do deer hunting, you hunt with a slug gun. Do you have any plans for hunting or pursuing any other game?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's not an overwhelming feeling yet. I'm very content with what I'm able to acquire now. Um, I hear turkey hunting is fantastic and a lot of fun. And everyone says, oh, you don't turkey hunt? Oh, well, wait <laughs> to you, turkey, there's nothing like it. I've seen the videos. I've watched Meat Eater with Steve Rinella. It looks like a lot of fun, you know. Um, I'm sure one day I'll get into that as well. But like I said, it'll hit me pretty hard when I when the time is right, just like everything else has. And I'm content right now to not be called a turkey hunter and just hunt venison. But one yeah. of these days, I'm sure I'll get into it. Yeah. And I, honestly, I think it's because I've been growing up and living in suburban areas and very urban areas my whole entire life. I don't have a lot of personal connections to uh, private land. Hunting is not in my family. So a lot of this is just, if I don't do something about it or somebody doesn't come my way and take me out there, it's just not going to happen. And moving forward, things are changing. Like I'm meeting a lot more people with access to land. I'm moving farther and farther away from the city. And so I think it's going to be inevitable that I do encounter turkey hunting and archery hunting and all these other things I keep hearing about, but don't have any experience with.
0: Yeah. It's one of those things I'm really trying to get back to my early days of hunting and stuff. My dad took me doing, you know, squirrel hunting and things like that. Dove hunting, which I did last year. And I hadn't done that in years and I had fun. It's just fun. You could sit on a bucket and talk to your buddy and just wait till they fly by and just start blasting them. And it, I don't know. I love all that kind of stuff. I really want to see other people get into it too. You got to try and bring as many hunters into the fold as you can, because as we know, it's all those dollars from the hunting dollars is pretty much what funds all of those things. So, yeah, so that's cool. Um, I got a question for you then about lion's mane. Um, I found lion's mane two years ago. I was actually scouting some late season scouting for deer. And I happened to come across that. I was also looking for hen of the woods, but I found it and I was scared to pick it. I didn't, I didn't pick it and I never made it back. Is it one of those things that maybe I should still keep going back and looking? Yes,
2: <laughs> because Lionsman grows directly on wood. I mean, with most mushrooms, you know, they're going to reappear in the area where you first found them, but it involves a lot of proper timing a lot of effort and a lot of luck on your part as well they don't always reappear in the same spot nor at the same time but if you're finding a saprotrophic slash slightly parasitic mushroom like lion's mane uh, and for those of you listening that are not familiar with lion's mane this is a toothed fungus that looks like a frozen waterfall with spines that hang downward and you pass it up because you said you were scared but it's one of the easiest mushrooms to positively identify, but I do commend you for passing it up because you weren't, <laughs> you weren't entirely sure. I've done that many times and that's perfectly fine. You know, like better safe than sorry. That mushroom will reappear usually in the same spot. Um, I've had a lot of success just revisiting the same oak tree or the same beech tree for a lot of those mushrooms. And lion's mane, I mean, there's other ones that kind of look similar. They're all part of the heresium genus. Um, and they all share similar qualities as well. But yeah, I would definitely go back to that area probably in the fall. Yep. And that's when you I was, might see it there again, and yeah. I would pick it.
0: So yeah, the whole thing, I, I was pretty sure I could identify it, and it was one of those things where I was just like, man, I'm not sure. What if it's the wrong one? And then I just picked it for no reason, and now I'm starting to think maybe I should take that mushroom, harvest that mushroom, bring it back. And that way I can identify it, do a spore print on it, all those things. Is that something you would recommend to people?
2: Yeah, 100%. And so whenever I'm out looking for mushrooms or plants, honestly, I don't do a lot of identifying out there in the field because it requires me bringing a lot of books out there or internet access to look for these things online. And so what I do is take a lot of pictures specifically of the plants With mushrooms, I'll collect a lot and just bring them home and then do the identification at home. And, I mean, I've brought deadly poisonous mushrooms into my house and (laughs) identified them there. You just got to make sure everybody knows that, hey, this one, I don't know what it is. It's probably poisonous. It might not be poisonous, but nobody is going to eat this. This is not going to make its way into our dinner tonight. But try to identify it. But I do recommend taking photographs because as long as you take a couple quality photographs – I mean, that will last a very, very, very long time to have a photograph compared to a specimen, which will probably decompose on you within a couple of days, especially if you already harvest it when it was past its prime. So yeah, I mean, I don't see any harm in harvesting it and bringing it home. That's often
0: what I do rather than identify it in the field. Right. That's good to know. I'm going to start doing that then because I, I still, I regret it to this day that I pass that up. And especially knowing as soon as I got home and opened up a few books, I was like, well, that was stupid. I know exactly what that was. And I just never had a chance to get back there. But, yeah, that's OK. It's how you learn. You learn yeah. the hard way. <laughs> not many things come easy. Right. So the next question is, is, um, is reishi mushroom a common mushroom that would grow here in the Midwest or is it not so common?
2: Yeah, so that's part of the uh, Ganoderma genus. And some people say reishi. Some people say raishi, Some people say reishi. You can call it whatever you want. All the names are anyway. It's a pretty common mushroom, and it's part of a complex that, according to many mycologists, they're quite difficult to identify down to the species level because they all look relatively similar. So we're talking about a mushroom that has pores on the underside, so we call this a polypore mushroom. It's a shelf-like conch that grows directly on wood. And just like lion's mane, it's a saprotrophic mushroom, which means it's breaking down that wood. It's eating that material. But if you find it on a living substrate, like it's growing on a living maple tree, it could be parasitic and it could be attacking living tissue and could be responsible in part for the demise of that tree. Yes, you will find that fungus in Illinois. There's one Ganoderma cecily, which is pretty ubiquitous around the Great Lakes region, northeastern North America, eastern North America. And I jokingly call it urban rishi because it typically just pops up in urban areas. You'll see it at the bases of trees, living trees, you'll see it on stumps as well. And you'll typically see it summer through fall at its peak but then it might overwinter and it probably will be way past its prime if you do try to harvest it this time of year. But there are exceptions. Sometimes you'll see fresh ones sprouting up depending on the weather. But yeah, that one's incredibly common. Um, But as far as the species, just depending on where you live, you might get a different species, but they're all considered to be reishi or reishi mushrooms. So long as it has that waxy or varnished or lacquered cap to it with those bands of colors like red, typically, sometimes you'll see yellow, sometimes you'll see orange or white as well. But very, very common mushroom. And a lot of people use that one medicinally as well.
0: So yeah, it's not actually edible, right? It's just a strictly medicinal type mushroom.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I guess you have to define what edible actually means. Because, I mean, cardboard you could put into your body <laughs> and it would be fibrous. But not many people would consider it to be edible. And a lot of people say, well, like, all mushrooms are edible once, right?
0: But a lot of people <laughs> I don't like
2: when people say that because a poisonous mushroom still is not meant to be eaten. So it's not edible, even though, yes, you can technically eat it. With the reishi mushroom, I know some people who do eat that mushroom. And honestly, I do not know why they eat that mushroom. (laughs) I've tried to eat eat it. When it's very, very young, some species have a very dough-like margin. It's not waxy. It's not hard. And you can kind of chop that up and stir fry it. But all my experiences have told me that it's quite a bitter fungus. And whenever you see that mushroom, you're typically finding other good mushrooms like chanterelles or black trumpets or bolete mushrooms, all different kinds that taste way better than that mushroom. Traditionally, though, Ganoderma mushrooms have been used for medicinal purposes, not for consumptive, for edible purposes, like you would eat lunch or dinner with a reishi right.
0: mushroom. Okay. So I should be making like a tincture or something like that with it then? If you think you need to be making a tincture, then go right ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not
2: one to should on people. (laughs) Um, But that's what some people do, yes. They would make a tincture out of it.
0: Okay. And then I've seen your videos on turkey tail as well. And that's something that's pretty much uh, a tincture mushroom as well or a tea type mushroom, right? It's not something
2: that's... Correct. Turkey tail is another polypore mushroom. And polypore is just one morphology of fungi. It's a taxonomic grouping as well. But typically, these are the woody shelf-like fungi that grow in overlapping clusters. And on the bottom of the cap, they typically don't have gills. You're going to see pores. And many times it just looks like a flat surface because the pores are so tiny, you might need a hand lens sometimes to see them. Turkey tail is another very, very common mushroom. It's found all around the world in the temperate regions. And this is another fungus that has been used traditionally, and it's currently being used for its medicinal purposes. And there's quite a few studies on the medicinal applications of turkey tail, and a lot of them are promising. And quite a few of these studies have been conducted on human beings as well, showing that it specifically has anti-carcinogenic properties uh, when we look at breast cancer and some other
0: cancers as well. Yeah, that's something that I haven't really gotten into yet as far as the tinctures, but it's something I want to pursue that avenue. Just, I mean, it's natural medicine, right? It's one of those things that if it's there and you can use it, it's it's kind of a beautiful, that's kind of the symbiotic relationship that we all share with nature that some of us don't don't utilize, but it's there.
2: Yeah, I mean, everything that's living in nature has medicinal qualities. Even grass does. Even you. If I would make a tincture out of you, I would get something out of it. I don't know if it's something that I would want, but I would get something out of it. I mean, you make antioxidants, endogenous antioxidants. You have glutathione. You have superoxide dismutase. Hey, if you go to the grocery store, the health food store, you see these things being sold. Why aren't we just grinding up you, you know? I, I don't, I don't it know well. why A we lot don't? of people like to categorize things in nature. You know, this is medicinal. This is not. Like, no, that's not medicinal. It's like, well— These things are producing compounds for many reasons, many of which are unknown. Humans just like to make up stories all the time about what's going on in nature. But do we really know? I don't know. But, you know, a lot of these plants and mushrooms produce compounds because they can't really run away like animals can. And so instead of developing claws or teeth, they develop secondary compounds that protect them from predators that would munch on them. But if we do munch on them, in some cases, they do have medicinal
0: purposes and applications for human beings as well. Very interesting. I still don't know about the and greens, as we'll call them. But <laughs> Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious, do you have any like role models that are in the hunting space that you kind of like just look up to as far as like, wow, that guy really knows what he's doing there or something like that?
2: Yes, unfortunately, he's my hunting mentor who lives in a house 30, 40 miles from Pittsburgh, is not on social media, barely <laughs> uses a cell phone, very hard to reach, but will take you under his wing if he sees how serious you are about hunting. And this is the guy that got me into hunting. I mean, I met him five years ago at a snapping turtle demonstration. He is a turtle trapper. And I went. Uh, to interview him for Learn Your Land. I wanted to put a video out there on him. And we started talking, found out that he was in the mushroom club. I'm in the mushroom club. He asked if I hunted animals. I said, no, but I'm looking into it. He said, let's go this year. And I said, okay, I'll just watch you. You just go out hunting and I'll just just stand next to you. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. You get a rifle and you're going to hunt. And I got my first deer with him. And every year, every time I've been out hunting, I go with him. I've never hunted without him. Five years later... So that's the role model that I have. I don't really follow too many other people out there. I mean, that's what I recommend. You know, a lot of times we want to look for these people who have that blue check mark on Instagram or on (laughs) YouTube. And like, that's the person we should emulate. It's like, but do you even know that person? You don't know that person. You don't know what they're like. You see the face that they're putting out there, but you don't know what they're like. And I say that about myself as well. It's like, you don't have to follow what I say. You don't know who I (laughs) am. You don't know what I'm like. (laughs) I'm just providing just maybe some inspiration for you. But seek out the role models that live near you. And it's just as important for you to do that as it is for them to pass on that information. It's so important for people who have this information to share it with the youth. And I think if they don't, I I think it really degrades their I don't know how to say it, but the quality of life in a way, it's like it's necessary for a human being to do that. I mean, you just look back in time and you look at that relationship between mentor and mentee or a master and the apprentice, you know, and I think it's just literally biological. Like the human being wants to pass on that information as they get older before they pass away. And so we have to seek these people out because they exist and we can't just rely on books. We just can't rely on videos, but that's the, that's the mentor that I have and I'm holding him tight and I'm not giving him away too easily. I didn't mention his name. Notice that didn't mention his name. No, that's fine. Trust me. I'm not going to, they probably know who he is because, uh, he's a good friend of mine.
0: That's cool. That's a good, a good thing to have these days. And I think a lot of people, they just, they look to social media and things like that. And the truth of the matter is, is, you may get some insight or some info, but the bottom line is unless you do it, unless you have that actual connection with, uh, with a person or with, with the environment itself, you're not going to get that through digital digital content. It's, it's one of those things where people truly are kinetic and visual learners. You can learn something visually from a book or online like you mentioned earlier, but unless you're there, you're in that element, you're, you're not really absorbing it or soaking anything truly. You're not soaking it up. So
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I do see the value of gaining inspiration online and learning online. Because when I was getting into nutrition, the people that I first discovered early on, I mean, they did that for me. But then having access to somebody in person, it just takes it to a whole new level. Because not only am I learning how to hunt, I mean, that's just a byproduct. I'm gaining access to an older male figure who's showing me leadership skills. Like the people we hunt with, they look towards him as a leader and just seeing him command that presence but also listen to us and also joke around with us and he's so disciplined with his time. It's like these are things that i pick up on that you just don't pick up on in someone's video or on in someone's instagram page or in someone's twitter account you know it's like you've got to find these role models in person they exist fortunately they still exist i don't know if that'll always be the case in the future
0: Well, that's one of those things and I see it more and more. And if you look at actual hunter numbers, it's one of those things that they truly are on the decline. And we need to try and bring as many people as we can into the hunting world and try and be mentors and stewards of conservation and show them the proper ways to do these things. So, I mean, I want my children, I've got three children and I want all of them to be able to enjoy the same things that I do. And if we don't really uh, start start bringing people in and showing them how to do it properly and actually how to hunt and keep them, keep that tradition alive, it, it very well may go away within, you know, the next 20, 30 years. It's something that's definitely, it, it's it's on the decline. Um, and And it's also, it's one of those things that, you know, there's opportunities out there that are out there right now. And if you talk to somebody like Tony Peterson, and I've talked to him about it, and it's It's one of those things that sometimes other hunters are actually against each other. They want a better opportunity or a better space. And by doing that, you're eliminating other hunters that may be out-of-state hunters or something like that. And it's just, it's slowly dwindling all these out-of-state or elk hunting opportunities that people have. So if you have the means and the resources, find somebody to take you out. And go out and do it because it may not always be there. And that's something that's kind of scary too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pivotal time right now. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. But just talking to the older hunters, they see some changes and they're not pleased with what they're seeing. And I
0: trust their judgment on that. So with that being said, anything that you think about pursuing, I think you need to go (laughs) out and do it. Small game, whatever it may be, Adam. Yeah, you're right. Maybe I, I want you to get into it. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> and who knows if you come to the Midwest, maybe we'll pick up a hunting license and I'll take you. I don't care. Yeah, and maybe that'll be the case. With that being said, I think this is a good uh, point to wrap it up. Would you like to? I'd like you to tell people real quick, even though you mentioned it earlier, where they can find you.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's real easy. Just learn your land is the brand, and as simple as that sounds. 75% of people who try to repeat that don't repeat it correctly. They'll say, learn about your land or learn my <laughs> land or learn the land or know your, know your land is a big one. A lot of people say that, but learn your land. If you just use your favorite search engine, you'll find everything. Uh, most of my content these days is on YouTube, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as well. Learnyourland.com If you want the specific URL. All
0: right. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I truly thank you for coming on and talking to me today.
2: Yeah, you're welcome, Luke. Thanks for doing all this great work. It was a pleasure being here.
0: All right, thanks. And uh, try and keep in touch. Talk to you soon. Maybe see you out there at the... uh, I'm going to mess it up. But the Harvest Festival in September Midwest something or other.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. The Midwest Wild Harvest Festival in September. There we go. Yeah, maybe I'll see you there. It'd be great.
0: All right, cool. Talk to you soon. Bye.
1: Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Oh, that's awesome! Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.